0: So we're working through a story about a man called Joseph, uh, probably a well-known story for many of us because the story of Joseph uh, has been uh, the stuff of um, art in all sorts of ways for centuries. It's been portrayed in amazing paintings, more recently it's been a musical, Uh, more recently even than that it's been a brilliant animated Uh, film. The story of Joseph is really quite a well-known story. I guess at this point we ask ourselves, well, why do we know of it? Why do we even know about the story of Joseph? We know about it because it's contained in the Bible. A, A group of books, 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books that have been brought together And over centuries, millennia, have been kept and have been passed on and passed on and secured and protected. And here we are 2,000 years after Jesus, which is another 1,000 or so years after the Bible was beginning to be formulated. Here we are today, we're reading this account. So I suppose one of the things that I want to ask is the story of of Joseph there so that we might be able to create great art or or create great stories or or the opportunity for Hollywood to create uh, great films? Is it there for that reason or is it there for another reason? Uh, Well, as uh, as a church which believes that the Bible in its completeness is explaining it and taking us on a, a progressive journey of understanding God It's more than just a great story. It's amazingly significant. It's fantastically informative. And I would suggest it speaks to us today in a number of different ways. But what we're going to do is we're going to just look at the story for a while, this little section of it, and then we're going to come back and we're going to look at how does that, therefore, speak to us today. Well, it's an interesting little section, isn't it? Most of us know of it, but I'll run through very quickly. Joseph is the youngest son of a man by the name of Jacob. He's actually spoken of, in the early part of our reading here, he's spoken of as Israel. Uh, it's a name which, which God gives him, the name of Israel. Uh, and Israel and Jacob as names, they kind of... The Bible uses both of them at different times. Uh, but here we have Jacob's youngest son being sent by his father uh, to his other brothers. What do we know already? Well, if you were able to be here last week, we know that the relationship between Joseph and his older brothers is pretty dreadful. I think the suggestions in this text that Joseph and Jacob possibly didn't know that it was as bad as it was. Because they do something very surprising if you think that the relationship is as critically toxic as it actually is. Jacob sends his younger son, who's probably 17, 18 years at this stage, sends his younger son off to go and find his brothers, who have got a flock of sheep and goats. If you've been to any Middle Eastern country, many Middle Eastern countries, uh, running across into other parts of Asia, what you will see is, if you like, traveling uh, shepherds, there will be flocks of sheep or goats that would just be taken from pasture to pasture, ever on the move, always looking for the next uh, source of sustenance for this flock. Uh, And uh, Jacob... His older sons, these other uh, older sons, 11 older sons have taken... uh, 10 older sons, 11 older sons. We'll come to that later on in the story. Uh, The other older sons have taken away the flocks to find pasture. What we know is that they've travelled quite a distance. They've travelled from Hebron to a place called Shechem. uh, And that's 50 miles. It's a long way. Just walking... It's a long distance just walking with a flock of sheep. Because with the best will in the world, they don't kind of get on a route march and, and work along with you, do they? They just take their time, they amble along. So these brothers have probably been gone for quite some time. But isn't it also interesting that Joseph is sent by his father. We see that he's sent by his father... To go and to find them. Uh, what we actually find is that he's got a reason to be there. Go and find your brothers. Go and see if all is well with them and with the flocks and bring word back to me. There's a little indicator there. You know when you read in the Bible one of the helpful things we pass over words really easily, don't we? Just stop and think. Bring word back. If we've got antennas raised to last week's uh, account what we see is that because Joseph brought an account back to his father of the behavior of his older brothers that was precisely the reason that started the animosity between Joseph and his older brothers because he brings back a report that they're actually out of sight of the father they're behaving in a way which is inappropriate and here we have, once again, Jacob sending his son, his younger son, to go and find them, probably help them, support take them, maybe take them some, some food from back home. Uh, and then find them and bring a report back. Tell me whether all is well. He's sent by his father. As he travels... He arrives in Shechem, which is the place presumably where they said they were going to go. What we do know is that Shechem was a very, very fertile part of the country. Uh, And so Shechem would have been precisely the kind of place that they would have taken flocks to. It's the kind of place where it would have provided real sustenance uh, for a traveling flock of herders. Uh, And so we see them at Shechem. When Joseph gets to Shechem and they try to find them, there's a problem. He's not there. Uh, there's a really interesting little section we see here that Joseph arrives in Shechem, and in verse 15 it says, "A man found him wandering around in the fields." So just a great little. Can you imagine he's 17 or 18? He's been sent 50 miles. It's taken him a good few days to travel to Shechem. Uh, and he's, he's just wandering around in these fertile fields. He knows his brothers would be here, but they're not there. They're not where they said they would be. We have absolutely no indication why they've moved. But what we do know is that when he arrives, there's somebody who knows where they've gone. A man finds him and says they've gone to Dothan. It's another 15 miles So this is a big journey that young Joseph is going on. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, A a man finds him. There's a few different ways in which that's been understood. One way it's been understood is because of the reputation that the other brothers already have, their notoriety, the way they've already behaved in Shechem, has, has meant that, they're moving on is, is known by everybody. That, that's one possibility. The other possibility is that actually the, the wording that's used it is a very interesting set of words which is very often used in the Old Testament to describe the man. Not just a man, but the man. The man of God. Uh, in fact, no less than the I'm going to use a technical term here, the pre-incarnate Jesus. Have you ever wondered what that, uh, the idea of that might mean? Let me just make it clear what the Bible teaches us about Jesus. Jesus didn't start 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. Jesus, the Son of the living God, is the eternal Son of the living God. Always has been, always will be, always is. And so what we see in the Old Testament at various moments, we see key steps where Jesus becomes present. Isn't that interesting? That tells us something about the Bible. tells us something about the insistence of God that we are not just sort of thrown onto a story of the message of Jesus being born in Bethlehem, but rather, God creates for us a series of of growing hints, growing suggestions, growing ideas, that what happens in Bethlehem is not a surprise. What happens in Bethlehem is precisely what God has always intended for it to happen. That Jesus was always to be present in this world that Jesus the one who always is the great I am one of the great things that Dom's been uh, spending some time helping us with is seeing in those phrases the I am of Jesus where Jesus says I am he's using an amazingly powerful statement he's saying the I am that is reserved for God Yahweh. The one who appears to Moses in a burning bush. And he says, as Moses approaches, I am. So remove your shoes, your sandals, because this is holy ground. You're coming close to the presence of I am. It's an amazing idea. I'm not, tot- I, I'm not convinced either way what this man is not sure whether it's one or the other. It might be the great presence of Jesus before his birth. It might be the notoriety of the brothers. But one thing I do know, because of the way the narrator is constructing this story, is the idea that Joseph then had to move on to Dothan. And the fact that he didn't just wander around the fields helplessly was the direct intervention of God in this story. That's what the narrator at least wants us to understand. When, Dothan, when jo- Joseph arrives in Shechem and he's wondering, well, what do I do now? He's not hopeless. God is present in this story. And a man appears and says, Dothan is where you need to get to. What does that say about the kind of God who we are engaging with in the Bible? It's The kind of God who is engaged in the reality of life in this world. The kind of God who is engaging in all of the events so that the events in Joseph's life as he takes him step by step is no less than God's hand leading him every step of the way. How do you feel about your life in relation to that God? That's the kind of God that the Bible describes. Joseph at this point, I'm guessing, arrives in Shechem, wanders around, hears the... His brothers are in Dothan, and that's it. He's just met somebody who tells him to go in that direction. And yet, it is massively significant because the narrator wants us to understand that the step by step journey of every one of these infamous characters in the early part of Genesis is all in God's hands. The life of Joseph is not a series of catastrophes. It's a series of God's dealing with this man for a purpose and therefore get to Dothan. The other thing that we see, it's not clear the deep hatred of the brothers towards Joseph. That is not clear in the early section. There are, some commentators suggest the fact that Jacob sends Joseph says that they probably didn't really know the depth of it. But you know what? You can't hide it, can you? You can't hide that kind of bitterness. It, if, it's not, it, if it's not said, it's the great unset. In fact, that's exactly what we read earlier on. It is just that, the great unsaid. They couldn't find a way to bring words out of their mouth to speak to their younger brother. And yet, when Joseph is asked by his father to go to Shechem, he is absolutely willing. No question. I'll do that. He's not a little kid, is he? 17, 18 year old who is willing to do precisely what Jacob has requested him to do. Because his father has requested him to do just that. That might not seem significant. But I hope it will in a few minutes. The second thing that we see is the response of the brothers. Jacob then travels to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. (laughs) Just stop for a minute. You know, just for a moment, forget all of the preconceived ideas of the story of Joseph. And just imagine... The relationship that is described in this story, when Joseph appears over in the distance, walking towards his brothers, and when they recognize him, they plot to kill him. Just moments of pause. What does it mean for a group of brothers to decide to kill their younger brother As he's walking across the plain towards them. Why? Why is that? What we do know is that Joseph is obviously favoured by Jacob. Jacob loves him. He's given him an ornate coat. He's identified him over and above the brothers. The brothers despise this of him. And yet what we also know is that Jacob is actually, we know this from our last series, looking at Jacob, we also know that Jacob is actually quite a wealthy man. He's quite rich. He's left his uh, uncle Laban's home, and he's left with great riches. He's accumulated riches in various stages of his life. And so when they see Joseph walking across the plain towards them, What they see is the very identification of everything that they think that they are going to lose in the future. I think that's what's going on. The hatred is not just because he's loved. It's quite clear, isn't it? That the brothers don't love Jacob. You say, why do you say that? I don't think anybody can be willing to kill somebody else who is loved by somebody else and love that person who loves that person. Does that make sense? Unless there's some sort of twisted mindset that's going on. I love you. I love you deeply. And I know that you love that person deeply. And I want to kill that person. That doesn't mean that I love you. I can't really love you. I might love what I might get out of you, but I can't really love you. And what they see in Joseph is everything that they are going to lose. It's as though Joseph is walking along with this imaginary great pack of all of the wealth of his father displayed before them and they have the opportunity to get rid of the potential heir as they see it. Get rid of it. Some of you might subscribe to uh, John Piper's daily notes. He, he's, he's identified um, today the issue of, of money being the root of all evil. You say, well, is that the case? Is that the case here? I think it is. I think it absolutely is. Not money in that sense. But rather, I am going to trust as he puts it very helpfully, I am going to trust all of the material wealth of this world as being my security and my enjoyment and my hope and I am not going to trust God. And as soon as I trust material things and what I can accumulate rather than God, I am loving the token which is money what we can create, what we can develop, what we can build. That's the issue that the brothers have got at this point. They see Joseph and he's walking along with the tag of Jacob's inheritance on, almost as though the ornate robe that he's wearing across the plain as he's walking towards them is like the the tag that says, not only have I got this, which you haven't got, I'm going to get everything else as well. And so... They determine to kill him. Because they don't really love Jacob. They love what Jacob can give them. Which is a future inheritance. That's a real problem. And so they determine to kill him. The narrator tells us the story. How does he describe it? In verse 19 he says, here comes that dreamer. I think that's just a great description, isn't it? Here's that dreamer. Let's kill him. So they take him uh, uh, and they throw him. Let, or they say, let's kill him and throw him in one to, into one of the cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. And that's interesting, isn't it? The dreams. The dreams suggested that Joseph was going to be the one who was going to be exalted and they were going to serve him how does that work how does that work in their minds we're a family that's living with all the riches of Jacob and and how is it that we're going to end up serving him The only way that I suggest that they could conceive of that happening is precisely because of what we'd said already. That they were going to inherit. He he was going to inherit and they weren't going to be left with nothing. And therefore, they were going to serve Him. That's the way they'd seen it. What's going to become of His dreams? I'll tell you what's going to become of His dreams. Nothing. Because we're going going to kill Him. And so they throw Him into a cistern. I remember when I was a kid, when we used to read this bit of the Bible, and uh, it says that Joseph was thrown into a cistern. I also always used to think that was wildly amusing and incredibly confusing, because a cistern to me was one of those things that sits above the loo with a chain on it that you pull. What they've actually identified in Israel is a number of these hewn out of rocks, out of the rock in the ground, bottle-shaped holes in the ground. It's a bottle shape. So it's narrower at the top and then as you come down it, it becomes very wide and it's, it's hewn out of the rock by human beings. And it's to store water in the desert, obviously, over time. Human beings in their uh, ingenuity determined that they needed ways to store water and so they stored water in this way. And these, these systems are dotted around Israel. And they found one which was empty. So Reuben intervenes and he says, rather than, rather than kill him and then throw him down, why don't we just throw him down? And he had a plan. I'm going to come back and save him. We don't know why. What we do know is that he's already, previously in in chapters gone by, he's been in amazing trouble with his dad. If you want to go back and read about Bilhar, go and read about Bilhar. He's already in trouble with his father from the past, so I don't know whether it was a way of trying to appease the situation, but what we see is that he throws him in the pit. And then verse 25 is just filled with horror there have been a number of tragic, horrific, awful cases uh, of younger people killing other younger people over the past few years. One of the things that has come out on a number of those and other cases as well is just the seeming, completely impenetrable sense of guilt. As though they do something And then they wander off and buy a Chinese or a bag of fish and chips on the way home. That is exactly, that is exactly what the narrator is saying here. They throw Joseph into a cistern and then in verse 25, as they sat down to eat their meal, they look up. That's exactly what he's trying to get across. The complete impenetrable hardness of heart. They have no emotion in the fact that they've thrown Joseph into a system. That he's dead as far as they're concerned. He's dead. They've killed him in a sense. And they go and eat a meal. I think one of the things that this at least suggests to us and we need to be aware of this great warning that the Bible brings to us, is that a hard heart comes in a series of steps. It doesn't just happen like that. But it is progressive. From a moment when they're angry about a dream to a moment when they're angry about an ornate robe, To a moment when they're angry, to the point where they'll throw them into a hole in the ground, which I don't know about you, but from my point of view, is one of those horrific thoughts. The idea of just being thrown into a hole in the ground is just horrifying. I'm claustrophobic. The idea of that is just dreadful. And here we have these brothers who just go and eat a meal no big deal how hard the human heart can be how devastatingly hard the human heart can be and one of the things i would suggest that the bible wants to encourage us to see is that none of us are immune to the possibility of a hard heart none of us a series of events a sequence of events in our lives can bring us to a hard point, a hardness of heart. All of us, the narrator wants to suggest, have the potential to end up with real deep bitterness. We all have the problem. That's what Jesus says on a number of occasions. We all have that potential. It is only grace. Grace working in the hearts of those who believe in Jesus and in the hearts of those who don't believe in Jesus. It is only grace that stops us from being what we could be. That's all. It is God working in this world that that if you like holds back the potential of our hearts. And so, while well, they sat down for a meal, they look up and they see a caravan of Ishmaelites. And... and One of those great scenes, you know? I I always think it's a bit like uh, Omar Sharif has just recently died, isn't he? One of those iconic uh, scenes from the movies, isn't it? Lawrence of Arabia as Omar Sharif kind of rides through the mirage on his black horse all enrobed in black. It's one of those... I You haven't seen the film? Okay. There's a whole load of blank faces there. It is honestly one of those classic movie moments. Um just like that. This crowd, this, this caravan of camels appears out of the distance. And as they're eating their meal, they see it. It's not going to move quickly, but they understand what it is. And during that time, as it's traveling in their direction, they hatch a plan. Let's sell him. So they do. That's exactly what they do. They sell him for 30 pieces of silver, twenty pieces of silver. Sorry, they they just do that. I, I think the narrator is just trying to impress on our minds just the horror. It's one thing to dispose of, isn't it? In one st- it's no less, is it, to sell your brother into slavery? There have been so many cases that are emerging in our culture today, in our world today, of people who have been trafficked into slavery. It is a horrific thing. It is a terrible thing that is going on in our world. And then, if you imagine that it might be brothers who would do that to another brother, how terrible we see the situation unfolding. So they sell him to the Ishmaelites. Sold for silver. How do they then respond to that terrible situation? Well, they do precisely what they said, only they concoct an even greater plan. They were going to tell Jacob that he'd been killed by a ferocious animal. But what they do is they take his ornate robe and they rip it and tear it and they slaughter a goat and they pour the blood of the goat onto the garment and then they carry the garment to Jacob. Who's an old man? And they—I—I I, I wonder what that moment must have. I wonder who carried it in. I wonder in whose hands that garment was as they held it in front of Jacob, and they said, "Is this, is this Joseph's?" With all of the horrific behaviour beforehand, with all of the deceit that was wrapped up in that. And they see Jacob crumble. They see their father absolutely fall apart as he identifies this garment and he says, yes, that is Joseph's. And I will never again be content. There's a little closing phrase which I think is fantastic. There's some move, and uh, uh, he's one of the great masters of this, although I wouldn't recommend his movies, but Quentin Tarantino jumps you from scene to scene. Kind of, you see that bit, and then you see this bit over here. This is what's going on in, in this. It's as though he's carri- the narrator is carrying us to a point of absolute devastation, and then he says, verse 36, Meanwhile, isn't that brilliant? Absolutely fantastic. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt. It's as though the narrator is carrying us to this point. And from Jacob's perspective, the end has come. But the narrator says, but meanwhile, there's something else that is going on. And we're going to see what is going on. But one of the things that I would just suggest to you is this. All of this just screams out, shouts out, Jesus, doesn't it? Here's a young boy, young man, who's willing to go and do his father's will. There was another man who came and used pretty much those words. He said this in John chapter Uh, 6 and verse 38 I have come down from heaven not to do my will but to do the will of him who sent me I just think Joseph is like this great big pre-Jesus banner that shouts out and says here's another one who is prepared to go and do the will of the father to those who hated him isn't that amazing? He was willing to do the will of the Father for those who hated the One who was going to bring the message. If they weren't sure, jo- Joseph and Jacob, if they weren't quite sure, the depth of the hatred of the brothers towards Joseph. One thing we do know is that we do know that Jesus knew the depth of the hatred of humanity towards him and yet he came to do the will of his father. Isn't that amazing? That is precisely what he said he was going to do. He came and he was faithful doing His Father's will. And then secondly, we see this second scream out from a thousand of of years earlier, He was sold for silver. What did they do? They sold Him as dead. That's in their minds. I know that He was walking, but the Midianites would not have bought a corpse. The Midianites would buy something that they can sell. But, as far as the brothers were concerned, they were selling him as though dead. He's out of our lives. And he was sold for silver. We know, don't we? That is exactly what happened with Jesus. He was sold for silver. He did his father's will and then he was sold as dead. By the Jews and by the Romans. Those who killed him, those who sold him. Just so that we don't get into any kind of anti-Semitic thinking, the Jews were guilty and the Romans were guilty. As though the, the Bible is bringing together the whole of humanity in those two pictures and saying who Jesus came to was the whole of the world and they all hated Him. And He came to do the will of the Father. Do you know what Joseph... Didn't realize, I guess, that he was doing another father's will when he went to Shechem, when he then went to Dothan. He was doing the will of Jacob, oh yes, but he was doing the will of another one. Because what God is determined to do is give us confidence in this. So that we can look at this and say, I'm beginning to see the footsteps, the traces... Of how God is dealing with us. How God is speaking to us. How God is making sure that we understand that it is all about Jesus. Joseph is dead as far as Hebron is concerned when the brothers got back. You can see the blood. He's been torn to shreds by animals. He's gone. But, meanwhile... In Egypt, something else is going on.